Alan Jacobs, an author and a Christian professor at Baylor University, wrote a really, I thought, wise observation on his blog about a year and a half ago, and this is what he wrote. When a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serve as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. Now, we could debate as to what is the great moral crisis of our time, but Alan Jacobs is certainly correct that vindictiveness, a lack of forgiveness, hatred and anger towards others certainly must be near the top of the list this week. We heard about how the current governor of Virginia committed sins in his past which were wrong. Racist activity, insensitive activity that he engaged in uh, in the 1980s, I believe it was. But the thing that's frightening to me is to see how stuff from that long ago that he's apologized for (laughs) is brought back up for him to be crucified with in the present. There's no allowance for the fact that, and I don't know this, he might be a different person than he was back then. Likewise, Kevin Hart, the comedian, recently inappropriate, insensitive, ungodly quotes that he jokes he made about homosexuals in the past were brought up again and he was tried, if you will, for those jokes, and he tried to say, that's not who I am anymore. I'm sorry. But yet the social media mob didn't want to acknowledge that it's possible someone might change. We might remember the Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford incident, as we talked about, for the Supreme Court nomination in which a person's sins or alleged sins from their teens and 20s were brought back into court to talk about both his and hers and others. And the idea of dredging up stuff from 30 some years ago happened again this week with Elizabeth Warren, who's apologized for claiming Native American uh, ancestry in an inappropriate sort of way. The Washington Post found something from, I believe, 1986, where on an application to law school, uh, she claimed Native American heritage to help her get into law school. Examples abound. Now, my point is not to defend any of the behavior of any of these people. In some cases, I don't even know what happened. It's not clear. It does seem clear that none of them were behaving like Jesus would behave in those situations. But my point is not to try to figure out whether what they did was right or wrong. It seems like there was some non-Jesus kind of behavior going on. 
Nor is my point to say that every one of those apologies was a genuine repentant apology. I would have no way of knowing that. I don't even know if all of those people actually apologized or not. That's not my point. My point is simply this. In a society where your past is always going to be brought up into the present and define who you are, is a society all of us will live in fear in because we all have a past. We all have things in our past that if truth be known, thoughts, attitudes, words, actions, didn't look as much like Jesus as we would want them to look. And in a society that knows nothing about forgiveness, has no concept for the fact that people could change, people will live in constant fear that their mistakes and their sins will continue to be brought up and used against them for the rest of their lives, which does something even worse It creates the lie that our past defines us. And although you and I may be thankful that no social media mob has come after us, we may sit back and watch it happen. It does create within us that subtle voice that says, don't ever admit to anything you did wrong in the past. Don't ever share what you might have thought or said or done. Because if you do, It will define you forever. And what goes on in the world today does reinforce the lie from Satan that we will never be any different. That we are our mistakes. That's what defines us. And for the rest of our lives, it will be our mistakes. I'm here to deliver a different message from God to us today. A message from the book of Isaiah. Over the past few weeks in Isaiah, we've been hearing accusations from the Lord. God has accused many of us of responding to him with, yeah, blah, 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 get on with it. That was Isaiah 28. In Isaiah 29, God accused many of us of at times honoring him with our lips, but having our hearts be far from him, being hypocrites, being wayward, Last week, there was an implicit accusation that many of us, all of us, at times make decisions without bothering to consult God at all. But the powerful thing, and I hope you've caught it, in Isaiah 28, 29, 30, and 31 was not vindictiveness. It was compassion and grace. That God responds to our failures with kindness. That God responds to our failures with mercy. Well, the good news continues in Isaiah 32 and 33. And I would like to say it goes beyond even the good news of 28, 29, 30, and 31. Not only is God compassionate and merciful in the face of our failures, he has resolved that our failures will not define us, but that we will be transformed into being something new and beautiful. That's the message we want to hear from God today. So I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 32. If you need to borrow a Bible, we would be super pleased 
If you would just take one from the rack in front of you and turn to page 579 uh, in these church Bibles. 579, that's Isaiah chapter 32. Now in just a minute, we're going to look at Isaiah 32 and 33. And both these chapters are prophecies. And so before we look at them, I want to remind you of something we talked about uh, earlier in the book of Isaiah about how prophecy works. And to do that, we used a little visual illustration of traffic cones. And so up on the screen, what I have is from one point of view, kind of from the front point of view of those traffic cones, it looks like you've got one cone. And it's only as you begin to view this from the side that you realize there's not one cone, but two. So it is with prophecy, especially in the Old Testament. Isaiah is looking forward to the future, and the future from his point of view is one scene. It looks like those two cones right on top of each other, so that they're sort of merged into one. We know from where we live, in the time we're in, that actually the coming of Jesus comes in two parts, a first coming and a second coming, and we live in between the cones. And so we recognize that some of the things Isaiah says are future are actually our present. And some of the things Isaiah says are future are our future. And so the important thing in going through prophecy, especially in the book of Isaiah, is to recognize that although he's using future language, some of it is actually applicable to us right now. And the important thing is instead of trying to divide up, well, which sentence or which phrase goes with the first cone and which sentence or which phrase goes with the second cone, the better approach is to realize that from Isaiah's point of view and from God's point of view, there is a unity to the future that's coming. And that even though some of the things in Isaiah we're still waiting to have happen, the future has already begun to be present for us today. And so we can hear what Isaiah says is the future as speaking to us here and now where we live. Well, with that in mind, let's start into these prophecies about the future. And we begin in Isaiah 32, just starting with verse 1. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Now, stop there for a moment. A king will reign in righteousness. That is a prediction of the future. But from Isaiah's point of view, he's looking forward to a king coming to reign. We know who that king is. That king is Jesus. And from Isaiah's point of view, we've already talked about it in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah is looking forward to a time when God himself will come and establish his kingdom on earth. For Isaiah, that's future. For us, it's already happened. That baby's been born. That baby grew up, lived, died, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is currently seated at the right hand of God on high where he has already been declared to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
that king has come. Now it's true that that king is going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom on the whole earth. So there is still a future to this promise, but we live in between the past and the future so that this king has come. He's already Lord. The world doesn't know it yet, but he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So Isaiah 32 is future for Isaiah, but present and future for us. But it's not the first phrase that I think we're supposed to focus on this morning. Isaiah 32 and 33 are more focused on the second phrase in verse 1. And rulers will rule with justice. This is not talking about Jesus. Jesus is the king, singular, one king. There are rulers who are in Isaiah's vision ruling under this king to help him rule his kingdom. If Jesus is king, then we who believe in Jesus are these rulers. We're the dukes and the earls and the viscounts. We're the governors and the mayors and the judges. This is a truth that Jesus himself taught us in a parable that we sometimes call the parable of the talents in Matthew's version and sometimes call the parable of the minas in Luke's version. And in that parable, Jesus tells a story about a man who goes off to become king. And while he's away, he entrusts to his servants talents, money, or minas, another name for that kind of money. When he comes back having been made king, he says to the first man who took his talent or his mina and invested it, The man says, look, I got 10 back for the one you gave me. And Jesus says, well done, my good servant, his master replied. Now look, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Jesus is talking about the kingdom. In fact, the introduction to this parable in Luke 19 is because Jesus says some people thought the fullness of the kingdom was going to be set up at that moment. And Jesus said, no, right now you have the opportunity to take your talent and your treasures and your energy and your gifts and your experiences and use them to serve me in my kingdom so that when I return, when that second cone happens, you and I will be mayors and governors and judges and rulers of cities on his behalf. That's what Isaiah is pointing to. A king will come and he will bring with him rulers, you and me. Now, when I say rulers in God's kingdom, you might think, oh, well, that means that someday we'll be pastors or missionaries or church workers. That'd be great if that happened, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is believers in Jesus. We're talking about accountants, members of the drama club, people living in retirement villages, your participation in your family. Whether or not you have any authority or not, in God's kingdom you do. Whether this world recognizes you as a ruler or not, we're talking about every person who has acknowledged Jesus as Lord. When you at your accounting firm, 
or in the drama club or in the retirement village or in your family, when you choose to listen to the king's voice and do what he tells you to do, you are functioning as a ruler in his kingdom. And even if nobody around you accepts that Jesus is king, you are functioning as a ruler in his kingdom. And so the good news of Isaiah 32 is not just that there's a king who's coming, it's that that king will have people like you and me who are reigning and ruling under his authority in the kingdom he's setting up. Now, verse two, what are these rulers like? What are these people who are the judges and the mayors and the governors, if you will, in God's kingdom? Each one, so we're not talking about the king, we're talking about the rulers. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm. Couldn't be any more applicable to us this week, could it? Like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Now, for the last two phrases, you'd have to reach way back into your memory to think about what summer is like when it's actually warm. <laughs> the idea that rulers are like a cup of cold water on a hot day. We can't remember what that's like. But we can remember what it's like to have shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm. On Friday, uh, our school was canceled and we had sort of like going a little stir crazy. So we decided we gotta get outside. So somebody in our family, probably me, thought it would be a good idea, let's walk to the grocery store. <laughs> so we walked, we dressed for it, but man, A, it was bitterly cold, and B, we probably, every one of us, fell at least 10 to 15 times on the way there. <laughs> there was ice under all the snow, and you just, you'd walk and down you'd go. I can't tell you how great it was to get to the grocery store and get in the shelter. You know what this is like, right? If you didn't have power, and someone invited you to their home, and you got to be with them, that's a blessing. What God is saying, that's what you and I will be like as rulers in God's kingdom. That's what we're supposed to be like today. Wouldn't you like to be a person like that? Wouldn't you like to be a person who no matter what's happening at your workplace, everybody thinks, you know what, no matter how bad this gets, John works here, Lauren works here, and they've got God with them somehow, I'm gonna hang out with them. Wouldn't you like to be the kind of person at your school which no matter what happens, there's a code wet red drill or whatever goes on, they're like, people are like, look, I want to be with them because they have God. They're a refuge and a shelter. This is what God is saying. You and I will be like this. We can be like this now. We can be that refuge from the storm. The place where people look and say, you know what, when bad news hits, that's the person I want to talk to. Because... They're going to tell me grace and truth. They're going to be like Jesus to me. They're going to be rulers in God's kingdom. And Isaiah is looking forward to the future, the future that is our present. And he says, not only will there be a king, there will be those who serve under the king. And those who serve under the king, they'll be like a store that you come in out of the cold. And the warmth and the stability is there. They'll be like a cup of cold water on a bright, hot, sweaty day. Well, that's what they'll be like, but who are these rulers? 
And this is the part I really want you to pay attention to. It's verses three and four. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. Now listen very carefully to who these people are. These are people whose eyes were closed and whose ears didn't hear and whose hearts were fearful and whose tongues didn't speak what they were supposed to speak. In the context of Isaiah, it's the people from Isaiah 28 and 29 and 30 and 31. Who are these rulers? It's the people who were hypocrites. It's the people who were saying back to God, blah, 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 blah. It's the people who didn't ask God for guidance and advice. And as a result, God allowed their eyes to close and their ears to be blocked up. But the good news of Isaiah 32 is God says their eyes will be opened and their ears will hear. And instead of being hypocrites and instead of being self-reliant, they will be rulers in my kingdom. And instead of being a stumbling block to others, there will be a shelter and a refuge. Far from being vindictive, far from holding our past over our heads forever and ever, God says, I will not only have compassion, I will transform you. You will simply no longer be the person you once were. I'm going to make you a new person. And all those failures and all those sins and all those shortcomings will not define you. So how does that happen? How does that happen that a hypocrite becomes a prince? How does it happen that a self-reliant person becomes a governor in the kingdom of God? Turn over to verses 14 and 15. In chapter 32. The fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Bad things are going to happen because of our hypocrisy. Because of our hard-heartedness. Because of our waywardness. But, verse 15. Till the spirit is poured on us from on high. And the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. Isaiah is looking forward to a time in the future when God pours out his spirit, and the spirit is what changes the people. The hypocrites, the wayward, the self-reliant, the self-confident become rulers and princes in God's kingdom because of the work of the spirit. It reminds me of Acts 1 and 2. When you have especially these apostles who when we last saw them in the Gospels were full of hypocrisy and doubt, denying Jesus, not believing, and the Spirit comes upon them and they are transformed into rulers and leaders in God's kingdom. Isaiah says that's how it's going to work, not just for them, but for you and for me, that God's spirit will come upon us and change us and we will be transformed. What will be the result of this transformation? 
God says he will take hypocrites, self-reliant, arrogant people, and transform us into servants and rulers and princes in his kingdom. What will be the results? There are three of them in chapter 33. The first comes in verses 14 through 16. The result of this transformation, verse 14, the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? That's pre-transformation. Verse 15, those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil, they are the ones who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress, their bread will be supplied and water will not fail them. The first result of the transformation is that you and I can dwell in God's presence. (laughs) For those who are untransformed, For those who are still enmeshed in the sinful ways of the past, they can't come anywhere near God. He's a consuming fire. He will destroy them. But for those who have experienced the transforming power of the Spirit, we can dwell on the mountain with God. Our bread and our water will be supplied. Now, it's a beautiful picture, but there is a warning. So just as an aside, by way of warning, Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who stop their ears against plots of murder, vindictiveness is not God's way. And when you and I sit back and on social media or on the internet or in personal conversation or in the quietness of our own hearts, we root against people whose past sins are being thrown in their face again, that is not pleasing to God. Jesus reminds us, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. God chose to be merciful to us. This is not the time to turn around and root for people to get their comeuppance. It doesn't matter if they're Republicans or Democrats or independents, whether they agree with you or don't agree with you. The idea that we would speak evil that we would root for evil to happen is not from the Lord. And if you want to be a transformed person, transformed people don't spend all their time rooting for people's past sins to come back and destroy them in the present. God says, I forgave you, you forgive others. I was merciful to you, go be merciful to others. And there's a real danger with the social media mob that we get pulled in. And that in the quietness of our hearts, we think, yeah, good. And God says, that's that's not what rulers and mayors and governors and princes in my kingdom think. Second result of the transformation. Not only will we be able to dwell in God's presence, verses 17 to 19, Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. 
Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more. People whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible. The second result of this transformation is that we will stop being so taken with the leaders of this world. And we will see the beauty of Jesus. I don't know who your role models are. I don't know who you read about in the newspaper, on the internet, and think, wow, what a great hero. I don't know the people that you're so interested in following, the Tom Brady's of the world, the Donald Trump's of the world, the Jeff Bezos of the world, the Lady Gaga's of the world, whoever it may be, the result of this transformation is you stop looking to people like that and you become consumed with the beauty of Jesus. And you realize that none of those people look anything like Jesus and that Jesus is who's beautiful. And when you are transformed, your eyes are fixed on him. Third result of the transformation. Verses 19 to 22. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. As a result of this transformation, we will get to participate with the king in the kingdom that he is building that will last forever. Not the literal city of Jerusalem, but the figurative city of Jerusalem. The fact that you and I will get to participate in doing the work of the kingdom that will last forever. A kingdom of peace, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of power. I think it's important, the last verse of chapter 33. Look at how this section ends. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill. And the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. The world doesn't know anything about this. Alan Jacobs is right. The world knows vindictiveness. It knows judgmentalism. Listen, the morals have changed. I get that. But it's still moralism and judgmentalism. And the rules keep shifting. But the idea is, is the world doesn't know what to do except to pass judgment, to bring up sins from the past and to crucify you with them over and over and over again. But God has a different message. You will be forgiven. You will be transformed. It will not be your past that defines you, but your future. Instead of living forever in fear that your sins from the past might come out, you and I can freely confess them, freely be forgiven, and be transformed. We're all hypocrites. We can admit it. We all forget to listen to God. We can admit it. We can all sometimes say to God, yeah, blah, 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 because the promise of God is that he is compassionate and forgiving. And whatever your mistakes are in the past, please, Please do not believe the lie that society is telling us every day on every Twitter feed, on every post, on every blog column, in every personal conversation that our past will define us forever. Please hear the word of the Lord. 
you will be a prince, a princess, a governor, a mayor, a ruler in the kingdom of God. You will be a shelter for those in the midst of a storm. You will dwell with God. You will see the beauty of Jesus. You will participate in a kingdom that will never, ever end. Who is like this? Who in the world would ever treat people this way? Which brings us to our time of communion. Every promise is also an invitation. <clears throat> communion is an invitation. For those of you who are here today who are not yet believers in Jesus, this is the offer on the table. You can ask yourself, think about the things from your past, the things that no one knows that you've said or thought, feelings that you've harbored, stuff that you did. Would you rather have the world sit in judgment over you would you like all those things to be known by this world? How do you think they will treat you? Or are you willing to let Jesus take them? Forgive them, erase them, and transform them. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.